0: Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And now we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket for those who are treading lightly into our hazy Dev Ops world of rainbow shundering unicorns. Welcome once again. My guest today is Alyssa Shavinsky, and if you haven't heard of her, and believe it or not, I, I only just came across her this year uh, at a meetup, and within the first hour, I thought, this, this is an interesting person. I need to get this person on my podcast, or I need to create a podcast so that she can be on it. And... It, it was certainly worth it. it. It was It's pretty much solid gold, and I'm really happy she was generous enough to be on, be on the show. I think she's the first person to be on the show that actually has a Wikipedia page, and so you've heard me say the name Alyssa Shavinsky, and if you haven't seen it written down, have a go. Google will correct your spelling and take you to the right information. She is a technology enthusiast. She is an author of a book called Lean Out, and we get into that, and she currently has a new startup called Faster Than Light, and we talk about that, but I think what's more important than the, the accomplishments is the person, and that was where I was trying to dig into, and I think we did really well. I actually I actually brought up the idea of role models, and that almost blew up in my face a little bit, but I think we got there. I think there's something that she has done inadvertently, is, is positioned herself as a role model, not just for women in, in technology, but for anyone in technology, and so I hope you get that from this podcast. So, without any further chatter, here we go, Alyssa Shavinsky. Alyssa, thanks, uh, thanks for being on the show. I mean, we don't even really know each other. Uh, I I saw you at one of Michael Mann's DevSecOps gathering encounters where you were kind of talking philosophy almost, and uh, the lack of success of your PowerPoint presentation actually made for it to be one of the best meetups I've been to, where it was just an entirely lively discussion. So <laughs> yes. that was. You remember that.
1: (laughs) I do. Uh, So for for, uh, the audience to have a little more context, uh, you know, Michael tested the PowerPoint and it was all good. Uh, And then, um, you know, people's laptops in and out. And then we plugged my laptop in again a second time and it didn't run. And so we couldn't use my slides, which forced us to have, you know, more of a real discussion. uh, And it was amazing. Uh, And I was talking about the ethics of, um, you know, what are the responsibilities of individual developers to ship secure software? And I just think that's such an interesting topic. And I get very different responses depending on who I'm talking to. So security engineers and security people always raise their hand uh, almost always and say yes developers have a responsibility to write and ship secure software even inside a larger organization uh, and developers developers have a whole other point of view uh, where usually they say things like you know their responsibility is whatever their organization has tasked them with which maybe yeah. just like ship insecure stuff fast
0: yeah, and that is more, most commonly the uh, the incentivizer. It seems in the development community. All right, we're flying down a, a rabbit hole, which is cool. I typically though, if you don't mind, I start off by asking you because you're you're in actually a really interesting position now with your your new company. But I'm I'm curious because you've got a very interesting LinkedIn. Um, how you got to where you are? Can you do, can you give me like a a super fast origin story? Uh, from... Oh,
1: sure. And I get asked this question a lot because my background is unusual. Um, I was a political science major and doing a lot of journalism. I was building basically like journalism startups inside my college. But then I, I fell into my first tech startup. It was 1999. I joined Geek Corps as an intern. They sold a few years later. And it was a really great start, a really great introduction to tech. The CEO of that company had a philosophy degree. This was a moment in time where people from all kinds of backgrounds were getting into tech. Uh, A few years later, Zuckerberg would build Facebook with people who didn't have engineering backgrounds. Um, None of us had engineering backgrounds at that point in time in general. And so startups were pulling in all kinds of people. Uh, And then in 2002, I joined Everyday Health, working with the founders, building up that startup and they IPO 10 years later. And so I had these great early experiences joining these rocket ships. You know, it'll get you pretty excited about startups when you're part of the successful ones. Um, And the last 10 years have really been me building uh, and leading companies, uh, startups, Mostly in the security space. That's a whole other topic. But a lot of people, the people who know me, people who do know me, it's generally from helping launch the Brave browser, which was very cool. I have so much to say about that. Uh, the short version is when everyone on the team is a security privacy person, it solves a lot of security privacy problems.
0: Okay. That's, 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 yeah, I realize you, it's probably very difficult to summarize your career leading up to now in that short of a, a space of time. So thank you for actually you know, cramming all that in. So like, it sounds, like you had some not just excellent experiences, I would imagine you had some excellent role models on the way through to your you kind know, of entrepreneurial decade that you just had.
1: You know, I wish I had more role models. I think my 20s were really devoid of role models. Um, there wow. were people I was a little envious of. Like when I was at Everyday Health and I was like a QA engineer and I was shipping software and it was very grueling and we had to work long hours and we were kind of chained to our cubicles. Um, this was a point in time where engineers didn't have the love of, free- of freedom that we have now and we didn't really have remote stuff. Uh, I was very jealous and envious of the founders who were doing to me what seemed like really cool, like cooler stuff, uh, where they were setting the high level priorities and setting the ethics for the organization. And just I remember even just watching them like come in and out freely, whereas I was really chained to my desk. um, And I wanted wanted that for myself, Um, both the freedom, uh, which I'll fully admit, like is a benefit of becoming more senior and also of running your own org. But also, I had all these ideas about product and about culture, and I wanted to be executing on them. And in my 20s, I I didn't really see anyone where I thought, oh, I really want to be like them because I love what they're doing or I love what they're about. I guess in retrospect now, that's kind of sad. And maybe if I'd had more role models, I would have come up faster. I remember being about 24, 25 and really wanting to become a VC. And someone told me, you can't be a VC. There are no women VCs like you just can't. Uh, and I thought that's dumb and stupid. But then I looked at the websites and I actually didn't find any women VCs. And I, at that time, I didn't have the fierceness of personality that I have now. I've built that up. I'm proud of that. I think I can be an inspiration and a role model to shy people and people who feel small to say like, hey, you can work on yourself and become, you know, more and bigger than who you are. You can become a fierce personality. You can become a more accomplished person or a much more ambitious person who can accomplish more things. Uh, And so, yeah, uh, that's really something, right? And these days now, I have a ton of role models and I have to give some credit to Gene Hoffman in 2012 Gene took me under his wing and uh, I learned a lot from him but it's still different to be a woman and to be single like I look at Gene and a lot you know he, he's had the help of his wife mm-hmm. and so part of what I look for now in my role models is people who are doing it without necessarily having that kind of support structure because I'm doing all the roles in my household
0: wow so <laughs> I
1: guess that was a lot
0: no that's cool actually it, it moves very nicely into um lean out you know, you're, you're yeah you have a Wikipedia page for that that's amazing so is that what provided you with I, I, I mean struggle can be the motivator that, that, that actually shapes somebody later in life and not having those role models is that what maybe motivated you to almost become a role model is it dare, dare I dare say that
1: I think you know a lot of us in tech end up just being role models if we end up doing things that people like I did not have that intention at all um over the last 10 years, a lot of my intention and focus has been trying to make sure that everyone on the team has what they need, trying to make sure that we're building things that people love, trying to make sure that the startup is still around in six months. You know, all of my thoughts in general have been along those lines or like, what can I contribute? Like, what do I have to accomplish and contribute that's uniquely me? And I'm, uh, I'd say, troubled by that almost every day where I wake up and I think about who I am and what I can do and whether I'm making enough use of like what I can bring to the broader community. I think about that a lot uh, role modeling is more like what people think of you and one thing that I do feel good about personally these days is I'm not particularly interested in what people think of me <laughs> outside of um, what it means to my responsibilities so like I'll be careful what I post online or careful how I present myself because I, I represent my investors and you know my customers and my my team but I did I did come up through hardship though for sure you know I grew up with a single mom um, my Hebrew name a Lisa means like the joy of having accomplished something after struggle and after challenge. Like it's in my name. It like, actually means that? Know, it means that. So there, there wow. are a lot of Hebrew. there are a lot of Hebrew words for joy. There are a lot of different types of joy, right? And the name Eliza is one who is joyous after having accomplished things through difficulty. And I really feel that. Like I'm a very happy person, but like a lot of my happiness is like we ship this product after working on it for a long time. Or, you know, like I have this person trait right? Like I'm a very strong person and it brings me a lot of joy to know that about myself and to stand up for myself, to stand up for other people, to stand up for what's right. But that's, you know, a hard one thing. That was not my native personality trait. I was so shy growing up.
0: Wow. And I guess that would, it's, for someone to meet you now, they would not think that were the case.
1: No, people, um, people do not. Uh, although I guess in some ways I have one role model. When I was about four years old, I met Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi wow. Goldberg came to the Delicatessen near my house she was apparently dating some guy in the neighborhood and I remember saying mommy mommy look it's a movie star <laughs> and I couldn't get over it because whoopi Goldberg was the smallest person I'd ever seen in terms of her like presence I don't think I'd ever seen someone with like less presence uh, so she was recognizably Whoopi Goldberg but it was like she wasn't there she barely moved she barely said anything she was very small um, but on stage she's huge and yeah. I think I'm like that now you know when, if you see me on stage. I'm a good speaker. I have a lot of stage presence and I love to be on stage. And I love any experience where I'm connecting with an audience and there's a different part of myself that comes out. And that's modeled actually after Whoopi Goldberg. After knowing that like professional stage people are like that. When you see me day to day, like my friends at Techstars who would see me come into the office every day, I would come in basically in the CEO version of pajamas. You know, I'm all like, I'm in cashmere, right? Like all the clothes, they're like really nice clothes, but all like soft and comfy, and I'm wearing Uggs, and I'm not there to impress anyone in terms of how I look. And I'm keeping to myself for the most part, being kind of quiet, just sitting by the laptop, very quiet. Like my energy is very librarian ish, um, day to <laughs> day.
0: I've never heard, heard librarian ish <laughs> energy before.
1: You can picture it though, right?
0: Yeah, of course. Yes.
1: Yeah. So that's what I'm like day to day. And then on stage, it's totally different.
0: Wow. Okay. So when I, I made the comment I made about um, the role model, but a lot of the things that you talk about and the way you you conduct yourself, I don't know if anybody actually expires for something like that, but it's the way that you can be introverted and extroverted and you can carry yourself and you're driven by technology, not by necessarily how people perceive you. And it, when people see that in you, that people think that is almost something that makes you a bit of a role model. And maybe it's not something that's a comfortable thing to think about. But part of the reason I asked you to be on the podcast is because when I saw you run that meetup and then I started looking into who you are and what you do, I went, wow, I'm going to talk to this person. So it is something that has been a byproduct of your actions, unfortunately.
1: I appreciate that thank you. Um, I I think it's nice for me. Um, to be honest, I remember in 2011 2012 I was just starting to be a founder, and it was so hard for me to get meetings, and that made it really hard to run the company. You know, like it's it's really hard to build a startup when people won't meet with you because they don't know who you are and they don't care who you are, and they don't necessarily believe in you. Whereas today I can get meetings with really interesting people, and those people want to meet with me, and they believe in what I can do, and that's been life changing. Uh, and so there's this really amazing practical aspect of all of that. Uh, and so these days, I'm, I'm very grateful. I remember just really wanting to build stuff. And you know, you, you need things for that. Like you need investors, you need teammates. To me, it was never as much as I'm kind of an individualistic person or in some ways a solitary person. It's a team thing and you need support from people. And uh, I get that now. And that's just been amazing.
0: That's awesome. So you've written a book, right? And I wanted to to touch on that. And just the idea of sitting down and writing a book terrifies me. But you were driven, I guess, by gender inequality, let's say, in the tech uh, and startup oh, culture?
1: No, not at Perhaps, all.
0: Perhaps, or you just wanted... No, yeah, I wasn't please, driven, flush driven by that,
1: that at all. So uh, okay. at the time, I'd been interviewed by journalists, and I felt like journalists had a story. And then they would talk to me, and they would cherry pick whatever quote would you know support their story, which totally makes sense. I totally understand that. But I didn't really like it. I felt like, oh, I have a story. And it's not getting out there. You know, the way to share my story wasn't being quoted inside someone else's story. Uh, And so part of that was part of the motivation to do a book. And I thought there's probably a lot of other women who have stories to share and they should share it unedited, right? Like let's not have our stories being shared in a filtered way. Let's just share stories directly. And that's what motivated Lean Out. I wanted the stories from women in tech. In 2014, when I started to put this together, those stories were much less shared. Five years later now, all those stories have been pouring out. But when I started to put together Lean Out, it was a very innovative new thing to share stories directly. And I didn't know what we would get. I was hoping for happy stories because I was happy. <laughs> right. I was happy. I loved being CEO. I loved I loved my startup experience. I've had you know, a lot of bad things that happened, but fundamentally, I was grateful and I was excited and I thought that there was a lot of good here. And that's what I wanted to share. And Lean Out totally changed my view. Lean Out, like what's the opposite of being red-pilled? Like Lean Out, radicalized me because I saw I lived in those stories. Not only the stories that I published, but all the ones I was sifting through that didn't make it in. There was one that was too dark to make it in about someone who was trolled and harassed and like the way it destroyed her uh, and, and created so many problems. And so like there's that piece where like my motivation was just trying to be like an authentic storyteller and like to give people that space. And I think that's really something that I love and something important about me where I love to to find talented people like and give them the space to share who they are and curate that. And I think I'm quite good at that. And it's a bit of a cheat as well because I didn't have to do very much writing. And so if, you're, if someone is intimidated by the prospect of writing a book, don't. Just curate stories from other people. It's still a lot of work, but it's a very different type of work and you can do it quickly. I published Lean Out within six months while I was CEO of a startup. How was I able to do that? Other people were doing the writing. And so, you know, if you think about the Mythical Man Month. There's this concept, you know, in in technology where you can't just throw more people at a project to get it done faster, and that is certainly true for a lot of software development where things are sequential and adding more people just creates more communication troubles. Um, it's not the same with publishing an anthology. You can have 12 people each publish 12 chapters and it takes each person one month, then the whole thing can get done in a month plus your time to collate it. Uh, And this brings me to one of the topics we thought about discussing, which is a I'm very excited to potentially publish another book. And I would like to do it within my company faster than light because I don't want a big sales force. I would like to build a company where people come to us because they like who we are and what we're about and we're producing useful things um, and we're interesting to people. And one way to do that would be to publish a book that is some kind of a useful contribution. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about now is what would that look like? Like, What topic do I want to delve into really deeply? People may not Read the book. I got the, this feedback back from an angel investor today. He's like, "Well, you know, do people even read the books? Who read Lean Out? There's like 200 people read Lean Out, but but it because <laughs> it's not about if people even read the book. People see that the book exists uh, and what it's about, and you actually contribute a lot to the conversation just by having it sit there on the shelf. People read the book jacket and they read the overview and they watch a like five minute video. It moves things forward conversationally.
0: It's interesting. It would be interesting to know how many people have done that version of it and versus how many have read it. Like what kind of ratio is there? How many people have you made contact with via Lean Out as opposed to actually read it? It's probably quite quite a large audience.
1: Yeah. Oh goodness. When Lean Out came out, I was on the cover of at least one publication in Silicon Valley. I want to say it was two, but it was definitely at least one. I was on the cover, and we were covered by uh, several literary publications, Book Forum. There, uh, there was one other. We were named one of the top indie books of two thousand fifteen. We were listed in Inc. Magazine. I say. We uh, lean out. Lena really was a big team effort, right? All the other writers. And when journalists were covering stories about gender and technology, they would call me. You know, the New York Times, when there was a story about, you know, when Ellen was uh, suing the VC firm about gender inequality, like the New York Times called me for a quote. And so you end up being, it's a way to let people know that you care about a topic, you're an expert on a topic, you're available to talk about it. And there's something really useful about that some people will read the book and that's great. Uh, but I, I think it's actually okay if people don't read the books. I think it's okay if people read the snippets um, and the people who really love the topic will end up going deep.
0: Okay, very cool. So that was interesting. You just touched on how you want to write a, another book uh, in the near future that as as Faster Than Light and we haven't even really defined what Faster Than Light is yet.
1: Ah, Faster Than Light is uh, this startup that uh, I'm running. We were just back by Techstars London which was really cool. Um, I've been building this Uh, with my longtime collaborator, uh, Robert Wood. We've been working together since 2008. uh, And a lot of the architecture was built by uh, Brett Thomas, who previously protected 200 million credit cards at Findicia. And there's a lot that we're doing here at Faster Than Light. We started off doing code reviews in the cryptocurrency space and had a lot of product market fit there, but wanted to do like bigger stuff, more automated stuff. And the question has been like, what does it mean to automate that? Uh, and so one thing that we started to work on was making a very fast to run scans. But what I'm thinking about right now, what, what I think we have the most traction on is like just certifying code. And I think that's like really, really interesting. Uh, so the first thing, um, there's just so much to say there. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. For a minute, so you can actually jump in.
0: Yeah, no, no worries. It's interesting. I mean, I don't. I came from before. I my current role um, working for a static code analysis company. So I, I I could probably ask a whole lot of technical questions about how you make we're intending to make it run faster. But I actually am interested in the idea of signing open source projects because is that is that the idea where you're going?
1: Yeah, uh, I think open source and also not open source. Uh, so open source oh, okay. is a really easy way to get started because mm-hmm. I can just scan GitHub. And when I find an open source repo that's built in Python or Java or Solidity, like the languages that we can scan right now, uh, I can scan it. And if the code passes all of our tests, then I have a nice little gold star graphic that I can send to the maintainer and they have the option to put it on their website or, you know, to include it in the GitHub repo. Um, and it includes like a timestamp of when we scan the code and some details about the report that was run as well as a way to access the report. And that can give people some confidence about open source repos. And it's like nice for the maintainers, you know, because they get uh, some of that external validation. And we can do that for free for these open source projects. But I think it could be really useful for private repos as well. We have a way where people could access the report that we would run. Um, for private repos, just I'd need for people to contact me. and um, That's probably how a way that we could monetize what we're doing, where we could charge people for that, which I think is a very reasonable thing, wouldn't be very expensive. But the private repos, I, I think the private repos may be even more important because people don't have any window or any insight right? Like stakeholders, customers, investors, they don't know what's going on with the code. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of companies uh, getting hacked in data breaches left and right. And people are nervous about that. Like people want to see that companies are taking measures and that the companies are doing like good on security. Uh, now, code quality is only one aspect of that. But code quality is really low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if you don't have good code quality, then I'm really worried about like what you're doing to protect from like insider threat and like phishing and like all these other things going on, um, like cryptography and like SSL. But code quality is a really easy thing to certify. So like a lot of this other stuff is really, it's hard for organizations to prove that they're doing a good job. Uh, Whereas code quality, it's just like, here's a report, you know, as of November 25th at 10 a.m., like this code passed all of these tests.
0: Interesting. So I think it feels like you're really filling a gap to me because there are a lot of tools out there that almost take a negative perspective on open source. Like they tell you this open source package has these known vulnerabilities Against it, and then at the same time, maybe they're running a tool that scans their own code. But there's nothing out there that gives the open source itself a gold star for actually being good uh, quality code or, or high in terms of craftsmanship. Is that is that the sort of thing? That, am, am I getting yeah. that right?
1: Yeah, you are getting that uh, completely right. I think part of my approach to entrepreneurship is is looking for white space. That's really important to me. And if there are companies that are doing a good job on things, then I generally just kind of want to cheerlead and support them. And it, there there are plenty of companies that are scanning and and saying, "Oh, you know, there's a problem here." Uh, but uh, I think you know companies and people want first of all just a bit of positivity, and I'm happy to bring that. You know, like uh, let's highlight the things that are working well. I think we could really use that right now. But also, like, okay, great. Like, there's vulnerabilities left and right that still doesn't tell me what's good and what I should use. Um, And so it'd be great just to look at a, a repo and know, like, as of, you know, last Tuesday, this code passed all these tests. And oh, look, like, they run this every Tuesday, you know? And so I'll check again next Tuesday, and I'll see that the code is still good.
0: And this is something that you would be doing. It's you would be doing it. It isn't something that is as a maintainer of this open source, package that I have to go to you I or, or submit. You'll do this for them. Is that
1: I'd love for people to come to me, uh, which is one reason I'm mentioning it on the podcast. If you yeah. have an open source repo and you'd like it scanned, you know, hit me up. Um, I'm very easy to find under Alyssa Shavinsky all over the internet. But what right now, while the company is new and people don't know that I'm doing this, I'm just going to go, or I've started uh, going to open source projects and scanning it uh, and then contacting the maintainers. Um, but it would be great for people to come to me. And that's, I think, what would make this a more like permanent part of the company as opposed to like a special project that I'm doing.
0: Right. And, so, and in, actually, in doing that, you are doing, as you kind of said, you're trying to get past the sort of sales side of things and you're creating this organic awareness of this is what we do by giving back to these, the open source community by providing this sort of, I guess you could say at the moment, free service to authentic or sign or, or provide a, a quality measure for their software.
1: Yeah, I think it's a useful service. Um, it's something that we definitely don't see being done. It's something that people need. And, you know, there was a period of time where I was thinking, oh, we're going to build like a big enterprise sales force and I'm going to learn how to do that. And you know that's how you build a business that has a hundred million dollars in ARR. And but I, I'm taking a step back now, and I don't know about that whole model. I got into know this one VC over quite a long period of time, and he was telling me how he's watching all these security startups just fail to break out. Um, he didn't really say that they're failing. They're like they're failing to become meaningful. They're failing to get customers, and it's because CISOs are overwhelmed. They're overloaded, and that sounds right to me. Like I've been feeling very resistant throughout the whole process of building this company, like resistant to the idea of having like salespeople go in and do outbound sales or, you know, I have friends who'll go and they'll like send a thousand spam messages and see what comes back. I'm like, that's just, it's really not me. It's not what I'm about. I don't want to be a person who's like producing spam and like salespeople in the world. It's not, maybe there's a better way. Uh, and what I've seen is if I go and I create interesting work and interesting content, then like CISOs will come up to me and try to get a sale done inside their company, and like people like you will come up to me and like invite me to be on this podcast. And so I think it's like way better if you can create and produce something interesting and useful to the community, and then people come to you. Um, and maybe that seems like a really obvious thing, like, and maybe more people and more companies would do that if they could. But for me, it was. It was a bit of an insight that I guess I felt like, oh, I have permission. I have permission to just try and do useful things and that that's a valid way to, to run this business.
0: It's funny, you're you're almost disrupting uh, company method. You've kind of flipped the idea of analyzing code and instead of showing you how bad it is, you're actually trying to show how good it is. And- yes. Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, you're avoiding a traditional sales model by, and which in itself adds authenticity to the technology because you're clearly technology driven.
1: Right. That's right. Uh, well, you know, and we can show where all the bugs are, but um, that's not responsible disclosure, right? So like if I find a bunch of bugs and, and believe me, I've scanned open source projects and found like medium level vulnerabilities, but the right thing to do is to bring that to the company and give the company the chance to fix it. And that's what we were doing when we were building these reports as consultants, like companies would hire us and we would run the reports and find all kinds of stuff and then the companies would fix it and then we would show off how the code was good after it was fixed. I really like that model because it incentivizes companies to fix things. Um, if companies aren't fixing things and there are projects which are being widely used, then I do think it makes sense to do some kind of responsible disclosure after they've had like 90 days or however long, depending on you know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think at some point we might also be disclosing vulnerabilities. But really, the model that I'm excited about, what I want to see is for people to look at a repo and say, hey, like there's an approved by faster than light stamp. Like, great, like the code is good. And to go to a privately held company with like private code and see that on the website or see it, you know, elsewhere and know that that code is good. You know, ideally just please like fix your code. <laughs> I, that, that, I think that's the the better case scenario. But I, I do think there's a place for, for faster than like to do disclosures. It's just, that's not what anyone wants. Like we all want to see that the code is good.
0: Right, right. You get my mind spinning now because there is um, vulnerability management an organization organizations is already kind of a a nearly impossible task. And if I'm in a scenario where I have relatively equivalent open source dependencies, but one has a gold star to show me that it's actually of decent quality and I need to go live uh, and with whatever compensating controls, that's the one I'm choosing. And it gives somebody in a security position some leverage if that existed. Does that make sense? That's right.
1: That's right. It it helps you to make better choices.
0: Right. And there's very little in place at the moment that gives people who are those kind of high-level stakeholders um, any way of doing that. I mean, vulnerability management is a nightmare right now.
1: That's right. Oh, it's tremendous. Um, it's huge. Something else that's worth noting is our reporting function allows for notes. And when we did these reports for companies for hire, sometimes the companies wouldn't fix certain vulnerabilities or in the code, or they wouldn't fix certain like formatting errors, whatever the errors were, and they would leave a note about why. And I think that that's valid too, because it's transparent and you can see the thought process of the company in I sometimes the decisions are because like something's really not in error uh, like it was flagged but it's not a big deal an example is the Xerox project was doing some kind of uh, some risky things with the code but they were doing it really well and upon evaluation like everyone agreed that it was fine and so uh, there was like a, a note in the report that they were doing this kind of risky thing with like assembly language but it was fine and so I think there's also a little bit of room for nuance there where maybe an open source project will have some medium level or certain things that aren't being fixed immediately but there's a description of why or like I think there is some room for nuance it's not as simple as like could pass test or like could didn't pass the test. Uh, there right. are going to be times where things you know, are going to be fixed on the line or where someone makes a judgment call that they're going to choose to live with something. It's a feature. It's a, it's a feature, not a bug. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but right. then, you know, we can, the community can dispute that. Like I got in a little bit of hot water before I started Faster Than Light, uh, going around giving talks, saying quite clearly that a, a very specific maintainer working on the Kubernetes project was making the wrong judgment calls in choosing to leave certain, I think it was certain default settings as they were. And because, you know, having insecure defaults is a huge problem. And the Kubernetes project uh, had very publicly made some choices around uh, leaving certain defaults in certain ways and they had their reasons why. And the security community and people like me were advocating that they really needed to close those. And so that's another thing that can be interesting with these reports is if the companies choose to make these reports public, then we can at least have more transparency into which vulnerabilities they're not closing or which issues they consider to be features, not bugs. And these can sometimes be areas for disagreement, like legitimate disagreement, right? Like mm-hmm. whether or not you're going to have insecure defaults, like that's a design choice as opposed to, you know, like SQL injection is not a design choice. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Let me just um, go back to what you said earlier, the original faster than light. So even though you have a different purpose for your scanning, is are they still fast? Is the idea of technology still part of it?
1: Oh, I think that that's really exciting. Um, and so we have this technology that is just on the verge of being shipped to production. Uh, and so it's not publicly available yet, but it's for companies and startups uh, that want to come to us. We can work out to get it implemented either on-prem or using cloud AWS or our, our AWS. I think that the the speed is really important, really essential. And I'm going to get very excited now as I talk about it. Uh, so static analysis scans on a large code base right now generally take 8 to 10 hours or more. Uh, the NCC group published some interesting research in 2015 around static analysis where they advocated that companies with large code bases do their runs on the weekend. Uh, they said that um, for companies with large code bases overnight may not be long enough. Uh, now, what happens when you have a scan that takes that long? Uh, it's a real bottleneck and it changes how you think about scanning. Like scanning becomes a really big deal. Someone has to like stay and run it over the weekend. It's not part of your normal build process. And you certainly can't ship like test and ship new code every day. Uh, And so I think that we're positioned to make honestly like a really tremendous contribution if we're able to take a 10 hour scan and turn it into a 10 minute scan, because now you can run that scan like five times in one day. What happens when companies can just comprehensively test their whole code code base and they can do it you know several times a day and it's not a big deal like it's really cool
0: it's quite game changing yeah so my my previous static analysis experience which anyone can find it by going on linkedin um, was one of those tools you were talking about even if i said it was fast it wasn't fast not devopsy right. fast
1: <laughs> right it's relatively fast so yeah. some of these tools uh, have really good automation or they're relatively fast but as a whole these tools are slow yes Facebook has published and Wired Magazine did a story on a static analysis tool that they're using internally where they scan the whole code base in 30 minutes or less. And I thought, oh, they have built it the same way we did. No. A friend went to a meetup in Seattle where they talked about it in more detail and their tool uh, apparently kind of like skips around. And so it's only like their tool is really smart and has figured out like which pieces of the code to be looking at. Um, And so Um. we may be the first to have built this. And for sure, I think it's it's really exciting, not only that companies could ship new code faster, but just what if people did more testing? You know, There are a lot of corners that we cut in testing because it's slower, it's difficult, but code quality would be higher if testing were easier. It's straightforward.
0: It is, in fact, yes. And in my experience, that static analysis gets kind of, well, I mean, to be kind of blunt, like blown off by certainly the development community, because as the incentives for velocity and time to market are certainly outweigh quality and security, it becomes a real blocker. And quite often it's either not done or it's done out of band, maybe even ignored. You know, they don't they get results, but nothing gets fixed. Yeah, so this is. Uh- can be pretty instrumental in making a change.
1: I think so. There's another piece to this, which is on my mind, which is the importance of making it easy to do the fixes. Like, there's two parts. One is that the scanning itself is a headache, but mm. then you still need to make the fixes, <laughs> and that gets into all this DevOpsy cultural stuff, where you know developers now have to make security fixes, and like, why is that hard? One reason it's hard is that developers are under a lot of time pressure, and that comes down from management. But the other reason is, I think. That it's really interesting to look at how we can make it easier for developers to make security fixes as well. Um, so that piece that I want to work on next, which is just improving uh, security education for devs.
0: Wow. So is there anything that I have not asked you in the next sort of two minutes that I, I can do now? Or shall we kind of wrap it up and maybe uh, we can do another podcast sometime?
1: There's one more thing. Um, <gasps> I am hosting... Uh, code quality conference at Rise London uh, in May, May nineteenth, And I'm still looking for speakers. I haven't published anything yet uh, in terms of a CFP. But if people are interested in attending or being part of this or sponsoring, I think this could be, you know, very relevant to the people who are listening to your podcast. I'm really excited uh, to make it a community event with some inspiration for Michael Mann, who is in some ways, I, I guess, like my role model for doing this stuff in the lending community. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really, excited. We have some great speakers already. And I think there's a lot of white space around code quality, right? Like there are a lot of events, but the, this code quality meetup and upcoming conference brings together like QA engineers and security people and devs and engineering leaders. I'm excited about all of us coming together.
0: Wow. Sounds awesome. Planning early. All right. If you're listening, put that in your calendar. Excellent. So, Elisa, thank you very much for being on the show. I hope to get you back and we can talk about more things, but it's been really awesome. It's been really insightful. And uh, yeah, I wish you luck with Faster Than the Light going forward. Yeah, looking thank forward you. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Yes. <laughs> uh, which uh, I haven't started yet, but I'm looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: And that has been this episode of Beer Sec Ops Podcast powered by Aqua Security. I've been your host, Steve Jaguar. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.